Mark chapter 14. If you'll stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Mark 14, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said... Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. Almighty God, we are thankful that your people have opportunity to commune with you and to adore you. And we're thankful for reminders that even, even in a world full of need for various outlets of activism, we're reminded 
that it is good to take time to adore our Savior. That it is good to pause, to think about our deep love for your Son, and to act in light of that with a focused attention on adoration of Christ. And so, would you send your Holy Spirit now, illumine this passage of Scripture for us, to teach us, not just to teach us, to prompt us to this adoration. We we don't just want a, a lesson about adoration. We want moments of adoration. And so, would you work that in us this morning? Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, they are many. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Does anyone have a charger? That's kind of a commonplace question in our modern world, and and we all know exactly what it means. Right? Somebody has a phone and it needs its battery refilled. Uh, everyone has this charging need in some degree or other. And so we freely ask for help in refilling our batteries. Airports are full of charging stations. Coffee shops you know, proliferate their outlets. The bedside lamp uh, where we stayed on vacation last week, had a USB port in the lamp base so that you could plug something else into it. The world is filling with awareness that people want their batteries charged. And sometimes we come to think of the Christian life like it's driven by occasional moments when we need to just recharge our spiritual batteries. When someone adopts that view, the church, well, ends up becoming just a charging station. In other words, the church is there for our spiritual refill when we want it. And this mistake may be conscious or unconscious, but it has ill effects either way. We hear about churches canceling worship services. For, for weeks on end, because they supposedly don't need a spiritual recharge right now, but want to use an opportunity to do good things in the community. At least that reason has a, a ring of good intention, more than when individuals explain long-standing absence from church by saying they've just been on a spiritual high, not needing a spiritual recharge right now. In fact, that thing, that saying, that reason usually puts me on the alert that there may be a spiritual low. In Mark 14, 1 to 11, we encounter a woman who understands that Christ is not merely our cosmic charging station for refilling our spiritual batteries as we determine that need for a pick-me-up. Rather, she understood that 
that Christ should have our rapt affection and attention and adoration. Jesus is certainly there for us in our needs, and nothing I'm saying is aimed to undermine that. But Jesus does not exist to address our every whim as if he is the pop-up stand to charge our spiritual cell phone when we feel like it needs a boost. Now, as Mark's gospel continues to teach us about who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like, the passage before us presents us with a, a, a two-sided lesson. Right? On, the, on the one hand, we see how Christ receives us to, to show us his acceptance, even when we haven't run ourselves ragged to achieve various causes. He says it, it was good to pause and adore him. On the other hand, we also see that we need to learn how to come to Christ for the sake of adoring and appreciating him, even apart from the sort of furthering some uh, cause that we have. Christ is not just the battery for our personal activism, nor is he just the charger for when we feel like we need that heavenly pick-me-up. And so the main point is that Christ as the Savior deserves our focused adoration. Christ as the Savior deserves our focused adoration. And our three points today are given glory, attentive adoration, and fitting focus. So first, let's think about given glory. Um, so in, in verse 1 to 11 here, uh, we have one of Mark's kind of classic sandwich passages, right? He, he has this storytelling technique that, that means he would start one story, kind of interrupt it halfway through to tell another story, And then come back at the end of that and and finish the first story. And he's bound these, he binds these two stories together throughout his gospel uh, because they inform one another. Taking them both together, we see the point he wants us to take away from both of them. And so here in verses 1 and 2, he tells us uh, about how the, the chief priests and scribes were seeking a way to kill Jesus without causing uh, public backlash for themselves. Uh, and then, uh, for the end of that story, if we jump down to 10 and 11, we see the end where Judas agrees to betray Jesus so that the, pre- the, the priests and scribes could seize him without that public crisis. So likely Judas's betrayal included helping them find Christ in a secluded place uh, to, to address their, you know, helping them with their fear about that public backlash. And, and then further, since throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has repeatedly told people uh, not to speak openly about him in messianic terms. 
he's, you know, sort of put a, a hush order on some things after he's helped people. Well, given that, Judas's betrayal likely also includes some testimony to these authorities about what Jesus had said more directly about his messianic identity within the smaller group of his disciples. So Judas told them where to find him and also gave them the so-called dirt that they wanted to indict him. And in between the beginning and end of that story of looking to to seize Jesus and, and Judas being the betrayer who helped them seize Jesus. In between, we have this story about the woman anointing Jesus with oil as a sign of her love and devotion for him. Now, as verse 1 notes, there's kind of a a complexity in in some ways to the the timing going on here in these events. So, uh, as verse 1 tells us, the events with the priests uh, and with Judas uh, about seeking to kill Jesus took place two days before the Passover feast. So, it it puts those events timed there. Um, But... We know from from other accounts in the Bible of this event, particularly John 12. I mean, I think that's a striking, I mean, focused, clear example. Um, We know from passages like that that this event with the dinner took place before Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem. So, so as as it lays in in Mark's gospel, as John makes clear, this dinner party in Bethany would have taken place before Mark 11, before the triumphal entry. So uh, verse 3, especially with kind of like a, a, a particular grammar tag uh, in Greek there, indicates that this was sort of jumping from, from one time, you know, that's been in focus, to another time, not necessarily giving us events in order. Uh, the priests... We're plotting two days before the Passover, but previously, while he was at Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, this dinner at Simon the leper's house occurred. Now, we, we might wonder what's going on there, but far from an odd thing, narrators all the time provide flashback scenes. To, at, at the appropriate places to, to help uh, illumine a narrative, to, to fill in the gaps most effectively as it develops so that we can follow tracking the details with the significance we need at the moment. And that's what Mark does here. He gives us a flashback so that we understand sort of more critically the significance of this plot to, to kill, seize and kill Jesus. Why then, I mean the question falling out of that is, why did Mark place this flashback scene here? If he's sort of holding it in reserve until the moment he needs it, why would he think that this is the appropriate place to to tell us this dinner event? Now the purpose, I, I think his purpose was to, to highlight several things we need to understand as 
Mark's gospel starts to press towards Christ's crucifixion. So at at chapter 14, we enter the third act, so to speak. And events sort of start to shift gears and ramp up to, to orient us more and more to Christ's, toward Christ's coming death. And, and that becomes prominent in this dinner interaction. Uh, and Mark puts it there within the, you know, while priests and Judas are plotting Christ's death. And so three things happen here uh, that are going to occupy the rest of our attention. One, in, so we're going we're gonna to use one to round out this point and then one in each of our succeeding points. And so first, the, the, the first thing that comes out of this is for why Mark would put it here is that this woman's devotion and adoration for Jesus form a sharp contrast with the hostility of the priests and Judas. So it's, it's putting in really pointed relief the difference between this love and devotion for Christ and this hostility and plotting against Christ. And this contrast highlights the point we've already made about how people think about, uh, I mean, I guess at least different ways that people come to think about church as time with Christ. Do we think that Christ is merely supposed to be on hand when we need a spiritual boost or, or need the extra help for our own causes that we have labeled as spiritual? Is that how we come to think of church? It's there for when I need it. Because after all, I mean, to put this right there in the story, the the religious leaders hated Christ because he wasn't the sort of Messiah they wanted. He wasn't overturning the culture that they didn't like to put them in charge of the culture they wanted. Jesus wasn't powering up their mission, and so they rejected him. The, The quest to kill Jesus manifests a, a hatred for Christ because, because he asked them to come and love him for his own glory when they wanted him to come and make them glorious. And that sort of signals a, a diagnostic question that helps keep us on our guard. So we think about what it means to come to worship. It doesn't mean that there's, we've fallen into this mistake necessarily, but it gives us a guardrail to measure, well, helping us not fall into that mistake. And so we need, we need to pay careful attention to where our given glory ought to go, where the glory we give should go. We need to be mindful of that. And that brings us to our second point, attentive adoration. Attentive adoration. 
And so um, that contrast, we just noted on the, on the one hand, uh, of hostility from the, the priests and Judas, Contrasting with, on the other hand, the devotion of the woman who anointed Jesus leads us to the second reason for Mark placing this story here, what he wants to teach us by binding all of these events together. The, the, heart, the heart of that difference stems from what, what we just considered. The woman comes longing to honor Jesus. But the priests and Judas want Jesus to honor them. There's an inversion of where they think adoration ought to go. And this this difference, this reason for this difference, sets up the second way that this sandwich turns Mark's gospel toward the final act as we march towards the cross. So, like the religious establishment was mistaken about Christ needing to give them their cultural upper hand, in like manner, among the disciples, people still don't see that Jesus' mission is not just about their sense of activism. It's not just about, Jesus isn't just about empowering them for what they think is the best thing to do. As this woman pours expensive ornamentation upon Christ, they ask, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. They've just said it's a waste to honor and adore the Lord Jesus. Right? In other words, they could have accomplished a lot with the money that they thought just got supposedly thrown away in expressing love to the Lord Jesus. Now, although John 12 tells us which disciple said this remark, Mark doesn't. Uh, And we need to, you know, reckon with that. We need to honor it, in a sense. Because he's leaving us with, with a vaguer understanding of the situation on purpose, right? In order that we would be caught into, that we would catch this kind of swirling irony that's happening. Judas was at work to take money for betraying Jesus. And here, the disciples were worried about spending money for a good social cause, and the woman was happy to use money to honor Christ. So the interesting factor here is that As Mark sort of gives us the lie of the land, two of the three were focused on the money itself. And this woman alone was focused on Christ. And that brings us right into the second way that that these events orient us 
to Christ's coming death. In that, in that Mark places this dinner interaction at this point in the narrative to set this anointing, this, this woman's anointing Jesus with ointment, within the context of the, the quest to kill Jesus. So the, the wider situation is this plot to kill Jesus, and here she's anointing him. And that shows how he is truly being anointed for burial. Right? This anointing is, is right there in the, in the mix of the plot to kill him. Jesus made that plain in verse 8. She has, I mean, just like we have processes today, right, for um, preparing the dead for, for burial, so too did they. And it involved uh, anointing with various spices and, and ointments like this. And Jesus is pointing out why this is happening in God's providence this close to when he would die. Verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. He knows why and what's coming. And this anointing with ointment was preparation for his burial, even while others are plotting his death. The shocking contrast here is that Christ was preparing for his ultimate humiliation while this woman gave him an ultimate display of honor. And, and isn't that how the situation plays out throughout Scripture? That Christ's highest glorification is in his chief humiliation as he dies to save his people? The same issue is at work here. Christ is exalted as his death is coming. And this woman teaches us something important. It is, as she anoints the Lord, as she uses her resources for this purpose, she teaches us something worth remembering. It is right and good for Christians to devote time, effort, energy, and resources to a sheer focus on adoring Christ. She is the one person around Jesus who is thinking directly and attentively about him. Without kind of, you know, rabbit trails about what could be done or what I'm going to do. She's focused on him. She is the, and she is the one whom Christ said will be remembered until his coming. And she is. She's right here in our Gospels. And that tells us something about the Christian life. Right? Jesus isn't just your spiritual battery charger. He isn't there to put your focus back on you. Right? With, with renewed, as if his purpose is giving you renewed motivation for what you want to accomplish. 
He's not at hand for your whim. Jesus is there to be loved and adored because he is glorious and beautiful. It's, uh, it's always a joy when new people join the church. Um, it always is, but, and you know there's a but coming. <laughs> uh, it's always, always a joy when new people join the church. But there, there are some new members that are kind of hard won, uh, in a sense, and bring a particular sense of fulfillment. And there was a lovely girl who, who joined our church in London after a, a really long period of wrestling with what it meant to come into uh, a Reformed church from a, a Pentecostal background. And, I mean, she, I mean, kind of the far end of Pentecostalism, and she was really steeped in this and, and wrestling with what our worship was like and why we do it. Um, and she did join, and it was a beautiful moment. But we, we had this one really striking conversation where she said to me that she, she realized uh, after a certain time that, that she was struck how in coming to our church, she would go for whole services without thinking about herself. And she wasn't used to that. But that's exactly the point. We're gathered here to think about Jesus. Not to have another opportunity to think about ourselves. I'm not very interesting. I actually don't want more moments to consider me. Jesus is infinitely interesting. And worthy of more time than we can give him. We are here to adore him. And it's good that this woman did a beautiful thing to Christ. It's good, too, that we would do beautiful things to honor Christ as we come together for communion with him. His preparation here for his own death reminds us the reason why he is worth our attentive adoration. And that brings us to our final point. Fitting focus. Fitting focus. So the the third way that this account orients, you know, sort of is starting to redirect Mark's gospel to Christ's coming death is that Mark places this event here to relate the preparation for Christ's burial in close connection to the Passover itself and to the institution of the Lord's Supper, which which is the next major event in the narrative. Now, we're going to think a a bit more about this connection next, um, not next week, the week after, the next time we're together in, in Mark's Gospel, but it's worth sort of taking an initial exploration of, of why this is important here. Because we should not miss how this meal, where Christ rightly becomes the center of attention for this woman, as he is uh, unknowingly to her, 
prepared for his burial is recounted directly before Christ institutes that other meal, the Lord's Supper, where Christ again becomes the center of attention as his death is proclaimed as his people eat it together. So there's this meal that puts attention on Christ where he's being ready for his death, and then we get the institution of this meal that celebrates his death for us. And in Mark's narrative, both meals are tied closely to the Passover to remind us the nature of Christ's death, why he died. In, as we read, in the Passover, the Lamb's blood covers the doorpost to guard people from death. And then they eat the Lamb. In the Lord's Supper, Christ is given to us in bread and wine as his blood have been applied to us by faith to shield us from death. And everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus should know truly that his death, his sacrificial dying on the cross provides the forgiveness of your sin. And this dinner shows the breadth of Christ's love. Now John 12 says that this woman is Mary, Lazarus's sister. So if we know those details, why again did, did Mark not include them? When, um, when we were on vacation last week, uh, Sarah and I heard this pop song from when we were younger and we started making fun of how bad and empty the lyrics were. And I, I don't care who you are or where you're from or what you did, as long as you love me. Um, I imagine the laughter is from people who know it. <laughs> You know, that singer doesn't even have interest in the name or identity of the person who loves them. And, and that fact sort of screams of, of weird desperation and complete self-interest. You don't matter as long as you give me what I need. But it may, gives us, may give us something interesting to consider, to think about, right? John 12 tells us that Mary was the woman who honored Jesus because, believer, Christ knows exactly who you are if you love him. He he has intimate, personal knowledge of every person for whom he died to take away their sin. If you love Jesus, it's it's because he knew who you are, where you're from, what you've done, what you've done not to deserve his love, and yet came to earth and died in your place to show his great love for you so that you would come to love him 
After all, it's not that we first loved him, but that he first loved us. But Mark 14 gives us another perspective, compatible perspective nonetheless. The opposite perspective of that lame pop song, in fact. In a certain sense, Jesus doesn't care who you are, where you're from, or what you've done. But it's not as long as you love him. It's that no matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, Jesus loves you. And to take hold of that love for you, all we need to do is believe in him as our savior. To receive the benefits of that love, we just receive Christ by faith. His care goes beyond all borders of whatever may cause us guilt and shame and encompasses every fiber of our being. And so Jesus is the fitting focus of our affection and adoration because he has so powerfully and savingly first loved us. And so we aren't, as this passage comes full circle, We aren't spiritual cell phones in need of occasional recharge. We're spotlights. We were made not just for sort of instances of usefulness. We were made to illumine something else that is glorious so that people can see and adore him. The Lord Jesus. And to get ahead of the, well, spotlights are only on at night. We know that we live in the midst of a dark generation. So we always need to be on. Pointing to Christ so that people can see him and love him. And we also need to realize that being a spotlight is very different from being a cell phone. Because um, you've got to recharge the battery in a cell phone. But spotlights always have to be plugged in. We have to be connected to Jesus as the continual power supply. Not just when we think we need him. Always. Which is why he is the vine. Happy that we as branches are engrafted into him. Always receiving life. And what happens when we're connected to Jesus? As much as the guilt of our sin, the shame of what we've done could be brought to bear against us, and as much as we have an enemy that would love to remind us of that, especially as we think about our standing before the Lord, Jesus says the same thing about us as he said about this woman. Leave her alone. She has done a good thing. And Jesus says that to your enemy, Christian. Leave them alone. That one is mine. Let's pray.
Father God, we are so happy that Jesus takes up for us as he did for Mary. We are so happy indeed that Jesus is not an occasional power supply, but that he is the heart and soul of every aspect, every moment of the Christian life. That we can never be unplugged from him. And indeed, he is glad when we were always holding on to him closely. And we ask that as we think about these things that you build up within us, that you increase our adoration and our desire to adore the Lord Jesus. And that spills out into moments of our life. But help us not to forget the reasons why we adore him. He is our Savior. He gave himself for us. And not that we first loved him, but that, we, that he first loved us and gave himself for us that we might always be his. We pray all of this in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As we